I think both of those stories about the kids doing their homework at 11 o'clock at night in their par- parents' little kiosk next to, the road, uh, next to the road in Vietnam or the guys in India in the slum understanding that education will take them out of poverty into a better future, that's really what we need to inculcate in South Africa. It's people understanding the key levers within their own lives that will change their own lives and change the society around. Hey guys, welcome to the Matt Brown Show. This podcast is powered by Digital Kung Fu. And I'm proud to bring you the stories of entrepreneurs hustling today's markets and building and creating great things in their own lives and in the world of business. So in previous episodes of the Matt Brown Show, I've spoken about this. You could call it an organizing principle that about entrepreneurship. And that principle goes like this. Entrepreneurship is something that anyone can do, but it's not for everyone. Today, I had the great privilege and honor to meet and connect with Howard Saxstein. He is an entrepreneur, but amongst other things, he has an incredible perspective on South Africa specifically, but also how entrepreneurship can contribute to the economic prosperity of South Africa. And pay particular attention to Howard's personal journey of transitioning from a high-powered lawyer heavily involved in the 1994 elections of South Africa to today where he is the owner of a group of companies in the telecommunications space. And pay attention to how passionate Howard is about the world of business and the world of entrepreneurship. So without further ado, enter Howard Saxstein. Hey guys, welcome back to the Matt Brown Show. I have the great privilege of how, of having rather Howard Saxstein with me um, in his boardroom in his office. How, say how's it, Howard? Hello, Matt. Nice to uh, be here with you. And if you look around at the picture behind you in the boardroom, you'll see, in fact, it's Everest Base Camp. I'm uh, actually from, um, we're doing this at Base Camp in Everest, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so it creates the atmosphere and also part, part of my life is very much about actually exploring and seeing the world. Uh, I've been to 74 countries. And uh, it's a great passion because I think you only ever learn by actually going to feel and taste and smell other cultures. Yes. So uh, our offices are very much a reflection of that. Have you been to Everest? I, I've flown around Everest in a little aeroplane and I've hiked part of the Annapurna Trail in Nepal, but I've never been to base camp. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Neither have I. So we have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So um, – your backstory is a very interesting one because you, and I'm going to let you do the be, a better job than me that, at describing it. But um, before we started recording, there was um, you started off as a lawyer, didn't you? I did. It's not something I'm terribly proud of, but you know, from the time I was a little kid, I had no doubt in my mind I wanted to be a lawyer. And I kind of went to university and I, I used to say to my parents, you know, I'm loving university. I'm involved in politics. I'm involved in – it was the era of riots on campus every day, long before the students' uh, fees must fall protests. And I'd come to my parents and say, I love university. I just hate the things I'm studying. And I said, well, you know, I'm not going to change because I know I want to be a lawyer. And I came out after five years at WITS as a lawyer and I went to go do law, my law articles. And suddenly I thought, no, there has to be more to life than this. Every single day someone would come to you with their legal plumbing problems and you were just like a plumber, unblocking their legal drains. And I thought, well, I'd much rather be the guy on the other side of the table than the lawyer. I'd spend my days dictating 100-page contracts and I was bored out of my mind. Yeah, can you imagine? I used to get uh, the law firm that I was at, which at the time was the largest law firm in the country, and I'd get into the lifts and the lift doors would close, and I would just feel completely claustrophobic and think, my God, I'm never going to do this for the rest of my life. And the sooner I get out, the happier I'm going to be. How old were you at that point? You know, I uh, I was in my early 20s, and the thing that I realized even then was money isn't everything. In fact, having fun enjoying what you do, being passionate about what you do is really what's going to make your life happy and fulfilled and successful. And if you do that, the money will flow. But if you're doing something because of the money, it's just going to be making you miserable your entire life. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose that's a good segue into our burning platform of the day, which is, um, remember when we first spoke on the phone, we we spoke about the, uh, the, the kind of context of entrepreneurship and how anyone can do it but not every, it's not for everyone. 
Yeah, I, I think I think that really is true. And, you know, I think you see so often that there are people who want to come into work and do an honest day's work and they want to leave at five and six o'clock and they not don't want to worry about anything. They want to go home and they want to have dinner with their family and they want to watch TV and they'll come into work the next morning and pick it up. And there's no disrespect to anyone who wants that in life. But, you know, the rest of us actually go home and they worry and they panic and at 10 and 11 o'clock at night or at 5.30 in the morning, you're busy doing emails and you're putting presentations together and you're sending out proposals and you continuously are thinking about the work. And, you know, that's the life of an entrepreneur and it's not for everyone. Um, and it's an unstable life. And But, you know, it sometimes fits into your personality. And the thing that I discovered when I was a lawyer was – I didn't actually care about other people's problems. I wanted to care about my own problems. Yeah. And if I am going to worry about something, I'd much rather worry about something I can actually improve and change than worry about something where I'm just a, a little knob being tweaked or a li- little drain being unblocked along the way. Or just a number. Exactly. You know, I think today I'm completely unemployable. Dude, you know what? I've, you know, so many entrepreneurs that I've interviewed on the show say that exact same thing. Mike Stopforth was another one. I regard myself as the same. You I know? think to be an entrepreneur in some way, you just have to be a maverick. You need to be let alone to do what you do best and just get on with it. And if you have to fit into a very tight, strict structure, if you've got someone who's looking at every move and trying to mold you into them – then, you know, I think many of us just struggle with it. And that's why I could never go back into a job. I could Mm. never actually, you know, the thought of putting on a suit and tie every morning would make me nauseous. (laughs) But I want to come in, I want to have fun, and I want to build teams of people that I can work with. And, you know, being in business, and I'm sure you've seen it yourself, being in business every day is going to war. Absolutely true, eh? And being able to choose the people in your own platoon the people that you go to war with is mm. the most important thing in the world because you want people who you know you can trust implicitly. You want to you have people around you that will kill and die for you. And that's what business is about. Yeah. And if other people are coming in and it's just the job for them and they're looking at their watches and they're waiting to go, they're timing their tea breaks or they're timing their coffee breaks, you know something? I'd rather not work with those people. I'd rather do the stuff myself. And it makes no difference. You don't have to be right. In fact, we learn by making mistakes. But if we don't try, if we're too frightened to fail, then ultimately we'll never actually succeed and do anything. Yeah, that's such an important point that you landed on is this fear of failure. Because as, as entrepreneurs, we're failing all the time. And I suppose it's like when you try making a cold call, you're sending out proposals to your earlier points, often t- you're going to get rejected all the time. And you need to get almost uncomfortable with being rejected, uncomfortable with failing. And that's what really, and per- coupled with perseverance, that's what actually makes an entrepreneur succeed. So, you know, uh, one day I was running a business called Healthbridge and I thought I needed to train the sales team. So I went to go find the most successful salesperson I could find, a guy out of internet solutions called Chetan Kachalia, known to everyone as Kosh, one of the most masterful salespeople in the world. And he walked in and he said, there's only one thing you have to know. If you can walk into a bar and pick up a girl, you can sell. And I looked at my sales team and I said, oh dear, we're in trouble here. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> but you know yesterday I took I took one of our salespeople for his first ever sales meeting now I grew up working my entire life my parents had a pharmacy in Hillbrow and I worked every Saturday and every school holiday and I watched my mother who's one of the most unbelievable salespeople I've ever actually met and you know in her little pharmacy in Hillbrow she ran the front shop my father ran the dispensary and they were one of the largest distributors of French perfumes in South Africa Really, and people would come from all over Johannesburg just to have my mother actually sell them. She was so knowledgeable. She, were, she, were, she was so intuitive of how to deal with, with people. And that's who I learned from. And for me to go with our sales team today and to sit in front of a client and to still make that clo- close that sale Makes is still exciting. one of the greatest thrills I could, I could ever have. Yeah, it's the same, same thing with me. I suppose going back to your mom, it's, this is not a perfume. This is an experience. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and you know, uh, so we take one of our new sales guys in at his first ever meeting, uh, and he said, I'm so nervous, I'm so nervous. And I'm like, what are you nervous about? And he's like going into the bar. You know something? You're going to be rejected many times in the bar. Mm. So what? You turn around and you walk away, and you will never see that person again. And chances are, if they say no to you, they've actually lost the art in life. 
Yeah. And you have to have that little bit of maybe arrogance about yourself to say, you know, I believe in our product. I mean, you have to believe in what you're doing. If you believe you can add value to someone, you know, they're either going to see the value and it's going to be mutually beneficial or else if they don't see the value, well, terribly sorry, you've lost art, but there are other people I can actually go help in the world. Yeah, absolutely agree with you. But you weren't always an entrepreneur, right? So you can you just walk us through how you actually transitioned from the kind of legal space into the entrepreneurship space? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I've always been politically involved. I was politically involved at school. I got to university. It was the 1980s. There were riots happening around the country. Half my university career was being shot at with tear gas, being chased by police guns, having having buckshot shot at me. Shot at me. I, uh, there was one occasion I even remember uh, we had marched down past the Witz uh, library and police opened fire and let the dogs loose. I went running through the back of a lecture theater screaming, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, in the middle of someone else's lecture and went and locked myself in a cubicle in the toilet so the dogs couldn't get at me. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there were crazy, chaotic, chaotic times. Um, and I came out of that environment and I was very involved in student politics. I ran organizations. I started an anti-apartheid movement and the level of excitement that I expected out of life, I think, was just exacerbated by the experience that I had. Mm. And I wanted my life to really match that almost the thrill, the adrenaline rush of believing that every day you can change the world. Okay. And, uh, and so I go to practice law. And I, I do my law articles and I practice as a short time as a lawyer thereafter. And it was just stifling and, and very, very, very restrictive. And it didn't match my personality. Now, I have met some people who love the law and I respect and admire them. It's just not for me. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to do things and be I believed I could make a difference. So I actually left the country. I ran out of excuses to stay out of the South African army. It was still in the days of compulsory military conscription. And I went to the States. I did a master's degree in political advocacy, political advocacy and international conflict resolution. And when the army no longer wanted me, I returned to South Africa and I joined the Independent Electoral Commission. Now, you must understand, like for me, being part of the transition to democracy was the most fundamental thing I could ever do in life. Mm -hmm. It was the culmination of all my political involvement. We are finally going to be free as a nation and as a people. And I started sending my CV to the Independent Electoral Commission. I'd seen an ad in the newspaper. And then I called every single week because I didn't get a response. And they would say, call back next week, call back next week. This went on for literally four months. But I would call twice a week. I was never going to let this opportunity slip through my hands. And then one day I got hold of someone and I said, like, just tell me honestly, what are my chances of getting this job? And she said, well, we got half a million CVs what? and we've thrown everything away. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I knew like that wasn't my routine. I had to find someone who could help me and assist. And that's one of the lessons I have in life. We all have networks. Everyone can assist. You must never be frightened to ask someone for help. And I called up someone I knew who was actually already employed at the IEC, and I said, all I want is for you to get my CV to the right person. And I did, and I included a note on top, and it said, I will go anywhere, I will do anything, and you don't have to pay me. That's how much I want to work here. Wow. And I finally got an interview. And they said, look, we've only got space for someone in the Nelspreit office in Mpumalanga, um, and you have to start on Monday. This was a Friday. And I said, I can't start on Monday. I've, like, I'm doing stuff. I'm consulting to people. And they said, you know, you either start on Monday or you can't. Mm -hmm. So I spent a weekend farming off work to everyone. Our Monday morning, they said, come to what was then called the World Trade Center uh, next to the, the airport. And there were 100 lawyers actually just reading the newspaper, waiting to be deployed to different areas. Wow. And I, I sat there, I read the newspaper with the rest of the lawyers, and the next day I came in and they were reading the newspaper again. And I thought, well, you know, I can sit here, it's a really nice, easy, simple job. I sit and read the newspaper. Mm. But I went to go find the head of the investigations unit who was my ultimate boss I'd never met, uh, someone called Khomotsa Morocco. And I went to her and I said, like, I'm sitting here reading the newspaper. I'm waiting to be deployed to Nelspreit. Isn't there something that you want me to do? And she said, you know, no one's asked. 
And I said, well, you know, you've got a hundred lawyers working for you on the other side of the door. She says, all they do is read the newspaper. <laughs> and I said, well, look, I'm not here to read the newspaper. I really want to make a difference until I go to an break. Just give me something to do. And I think I worked till two o'clock that morning and three o'clock the next morning. And on the third day, she said, well, actually, you're not going to Nelspreit. I'm transferring you to head office. Wow, cool, man. And uh, a few days later, I met the new head of the investigations unit in Gauteng. And he said, oh, no, you're coming with me. Like, select 36 of these lawyers and we're going to set up the investigation. Investigations unit in Gauteng, and you will coordinate and manage the office. And and what were some of the things that you uncovered? Oh, uh, you know, we our I I said to our boss at the time, so what are we actually going to do? What's our job? And she she said to me, just go do good. And we looked, and we were, we were meant to go and investigate people who wouldn't allow, for example, their workers to vote, or people who were intimidating people, or people that were bribing people. And we would send out investigators every single day. And one day we got a call um, about about a farmer who wouldn't allow his staff to vote. And I, I brought two of my investigators, the guy was in Ferenigen, and um, I brought two of my investigators together and I said, please, will you go out to this farmer, just explain to him that he's either going to let his farm workers vote or else we're going to arrest him. It's that simple. And uh, the one investigator turns around and says, I'm not going into in a car with that guy. And I said, why? He said, because he's black. Kidding me. And I said, you're here working on the elections. You can't say anything like, like that. He said, well, I've never been in a car with a black man before and I'm not going to start now. Jeez. And uh, this was a public prosecutor. And I said, look, you have two choices. You either go back to your old job today or you get into the car with Muhammad Judge Bai, who later became a judge. <laughs> and they came back a few hours later and told the most remarkable story. They were on the farm and the farmer actually invited them onto the stoop, gave them tea and cook sisters, said, of course, everyone's allowed to vote. And as they were leaving, a farm worker said to them, you see that chicken shed over there? No one's allowed into it anymore. And he produces a lump of lead. And he gives it to them. He says, I don't know, but I found this outside. Lead. Lead. Okay. And they come back, and the first thing that Victor, the prosecutor, says to me is, he says, first of all, I want to tell you that Muhammad can drive. The second thing is, do you know he's a genius? <laughs> and I said, yes, I actually do. He said, it was a life-changing experience for him to get in the car for the first man, first time with a person of color, to actually speak to someone, to speak to someone as an equal or in fact superior, someone of a far greater intellectual level, but to work together for the first time. And sometimes we forget, particularly in the South African environment where we mesh in cultures and backgrounds together and educational levels together, we often just miss each other. Mm. And you know, when you force people to work together, they actually see the humanity in each other. But the amazing thing is, together with national intelligence, uh, they raided the chicken farm, then covered a arms and bomb manufacturing right-wing plot on the farm, and these two guys, by working together, actually helped save the country. No way. And, you know, when, when things got more and more hectic as the elections went, and there were queues 16 kilometers long in places like Davidton and Katlahong, you know, we said to the lawyers, take off your jackets and your ties and we're going to go and pack ballot papers into police vehicles and army vehicles and we're going to go drive them into the township. And someone of them said, but we're lawyers. We're here to – I said, well, that's not what we're here to do. We're here to save the country. And if you think you're going to save the country by lawyering around the place, you're actually wrong. We're going to do what it takes because that's what the IEC needs. Yeah. And, you know, that's the philosophy that I think can apply to everyone. Yeah. You know, in any job, you know, if you're at Standard Bank, maybe, okay, you're a clerk doing something with a very specific uh, description. If you're in an entrepreneurial uh, environment, you're going to do whatever it takes, including clean the toilet if necessary, but you're going to do whatever it takes in order to get the job done. Yeah. And that, once again, has been a philosophy that stayed with me my entire life of, I don't care what your job description is. If you care what your job description is, then you're in the wrong environment. Yeah. If you're here to fight this war, to do what it takes, to be here at 2 o'clock in the morning if needs be, so be it because we're all chasing the ultimate goal and this vision of what we're about. And I think people need to find meaning in their jobs. Mm. Gone are the days that people do a job because they're being paid a salary. Stay with us. We'll be right back. 
Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. I was just going to ask you when you when I listened to that story I I you know there's always this kind of uh paradigm around you know following your your passion or following your purpose and that was very much purpose led work. Why did you leave that? You know I'd worked every single night and every weekend for nearly 6 years of my life. Um and it just reached the stage you know after the 1994 elections, we shrank from a, an organization at the IEC of half a million people down to about four or five of us. And then we had to build from scratch because the 94 elections were quite chaotic. Mm. But the part that I loved was the ability to build, the ability to start with nothing, with a blank sheet of paper and say, okay, what does the ultimate vision need to look like and how are we going to get there and how are we going to put the right people and the right blocks in place? And very much at the IEC, it was about that. We needed to get the constitution and the electoral parts of the constitution written and then we needed to get the electoral act written. And we decided that, for example, part of the building blocks of elections, and I have to give credit to Norman Duplessis, one of the great visionaries of elections in South Africa, and part, part of this was we needed to build from census enumerator areas, joining them together into voting districts, joining voting districts together into wards, joining wards together into municipalities, joining municipalities together into provinces, and joining provinces together into South Africa. That's what we needed to do, and we were going to do this from scratch. And in order to start, that very first block was in 1995, the country conducted a census. Mm. And the country was divided into approximately 130 census enumerator areas. Each one had about 120 homes in. And so we went off to the Surveyor General uh, and to, to the head of Stats SA, Pali Lohotla, who's still um, uh, quite vocal today and still is our uh-huh. Statistician General. And we said, Paddy, give us your sense, the maps of all your census enumerator areas. I said, well, we don't have. I said, well, how is it possible that you've conducted a census without these 130,000 maps? Mm. I said, well, no one's ever mapped rural areas before. No one's ever mapped the townships before. No one actually knows where the population resides. So they started what forms, they called them O2 forms. And it would be, we once took the press on a junket and we said, here's an O2 form. You go and mark the census enumerator area. And it said, start at the road, walk down the path until you come to the river turn left to the place with the house with the green door and then go up to the place where the red car had the accident. And the press look at this and say, like, it's impossible. And we said, well, just try it. And you walk down the path, you come to the river, it's easy, but they can't find the house with the green door because the guys painted the house. The green door is no longer, <laughs> long, longer green. And then, and then we say, well, it says to the place where the red car had the accident. How do we find that? It's quite simple. In that village where the red car had the accident is the most important thing that happened in that village in probably a decade. You can ask any single person and they'll show exactly where the red car had. But we mapped the country. We had hundreds if not thousands of people every single day clicking as they walked in the very early days of GPS, clicking as they walked, measuring and creating the maps for the country. And with based on that vision which Norman Duplessis had, it was unbelievable we actually created maps of the country, the first ever maps of the country. It was in the days before Google Maps. We used to have airplanes flying over, taking pictures of squatter communities, trying to work out, count the number of shacks in an area to try work where the population lived in order to register them. And probably one of my favorite stories is we went to go draft, uh, we went to go to parliament to go brief them on preparations for the elections. 
and Parliament was having difficulty passing the Electoral Act. There was some sort of uh, of dispute between the Department of Home Affairs, which was run at the time by uh, Mangasutu Botelezi and the rest of government. So they just weren't passing the legislation that would allow us to go and register the country. And I did the presentation to the Parliamentary Portfolio Committee on Home Affairs. And one of the members of Parliament says, we haven't passed the legislation. Time is running out. How on earth are you actually going to go and register 20, 25 million people? We haven't given you the time to do it. And of course, I have no idea what the answer is. So I turned to Judge Krechler, who was chairman of the IEC at the time, is sitting next to me and say, Judge Krechler, would you like to answer that question? <laughs> and Judge Krechler, of course, doesn't have a clue what the answer is either. So he turns around and he says, Norman Duplessis, you're the expert. Would you like to answer the question? <laughs> and of course, Norman doesn't have a, an idea either. So he says, oh, we'll have a machine that will go zip, zip, and the people will be registered. And with that, everyone seems happy and we go on. And we walk out of the parliamentary committee and say, Norman, what is this machine that goes zip, zip? He says, I have no idea, but I had to tell them something, <laughs> so I made it up. So I go back to the office. I think, you know something? That's a brilliant idea. Everyone's got a barcoded ID. Why don't we get like a credit card terminal that you can scan the ID, mark it to a location where, where you've done it? So I don't know how to do this. I go down there. Downstairs from my office is a pick and pay. I go and I look who creates barcode scanners because they're scanning all the stuff at pick and pay. And I see it's a company called NCR, National Cash Register. And I call them up. I say, I need a credit card terminal that can print me a receipt on a self-adhesive envelope that can record an ID number with a scanner and against the location. Within a week, they've delivered the thing to me. And I walk into Norman's office and I say, take out your ID. And he takes out his ID. I go, scan it. I print a receipt. I stick it. He says, what is this? So it's a zip-zip machine. <laughs> and Norman says, what is a zip-zip machine? I said, well, you know, you told them in Parliament about this. I just went and built one. And that's, I think, the amazing <laughs> thing at being at the startup phase where you don't know how anything is going to get done and everything you do is going to be unique and a new invention. And that's why you don't have to be in business to be an entrepreneur. Mm. You can be in any environment. I was in a semi-governmental or government-funded organization at the time. We knew we had to deliver an election. We knew the date was set. And it was an immovable date. And you were going to do whatever it took in order to get there. And that created levels of creativity and innovation around. You knew you had to get the job done. You knew it had never been done before. You had to create new technology, invent stuff. Even, you know, Ronnie Aptirka, one of the great entrepreneurs of South Africa, once told me that the definition of an entrepreneur is someone who jumps out of an airplane with silkworms, hoping that they're overachievers. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I, in, the way, in the way down come election time and everywhere else, you hope your silkworms are going to actually knit you a parachute. Yeah. And, uh, and <laughs> when you're in an environment such as the IEC with your date that's immovable, um, you do whatever it takes to get the job done and you're as innovative as possible. And I think in business as well, that's the exact same thing. You know what has to be done. You know if someone's done it before, then probably you shouldn't be doing it. You need to do it better. You need to do it smarter. You need to do it quicker. You need to do it with the help of others. Yeah. And it needs to be all-consuming. And once you've got that, I think the innovation just flows. Absolutely. When you look back at all those experiences that you had, because of course you did 1994, but you went and did consecutive elections after that. When you look back at that part of your life, what jumps for you as the single biggest lesson that you learned at that time that prepared you for the world that you uh, live in today as an entrepreneur? So I, I think the one thing I realized is that in those days, I would wake up every morning so excited to go into work, believing that I was going to change the world every single day. And forgive me for the arrogance, but I think I did, because I think many of us change the world for better every single, single day. And I realized that, in fact, there's not one thing that can make you complete as a person. If you go to work and work is satisfying and great and you're going home, but are you really happy? Are you, are you touching on all those aspects of your life that will complete you as a person? Are you involved in your community? Do you think you're making a difference? Are you helping other people? Are you mentoring people through, through whether it's in the business world or whatever you, you're doing? Are you a complete rounded person? 
And I appreciate that everyone's makeup is completely different. We're like jigsaw puzzles and we need to put all the pieces together. But you have to recognize what's in your life that will make you happy by completing you. And you need to be able to say, I have many facets to my existence. And I do today. I'm heavily involved in political stuff. I'm heavily involved in community stuff. I'm involved in security stuff. I'm involved in business. And I, my life is unbelievable. I think I have the best life of any person I know. And I, I feel enormously blessed. But how many people out there can actually say, I think I have the best life of anyone I know? There isn't a single person I'd want to swap it with. And it doesn't mean that all of life is perfect. There are ups and downs and there are terrible days and terrible moments and there are tragedies. But that's all just part of life. Mm. But ultimately, you have to be able to look back at your life and say, were you actually happy? Did yeah. you actually enjoy yourself? Did you feel fulfilled as a person? And, you know, maybe, maybe it's one of those Maslow hierarchy of needs things. But that self-fulfillment thing, you need to understand what will complete you as a person. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that I realized at the IEC. I knew when I left the IEC, and I had to, after six years of working every night and every weekend, you need a new start. And I had this idea that I was going to go sit on a beach in Thailand for a year. I never quite got my uh, <laughs> my time in Thailand until much, much late, later on. Um, but, but I did realize that in my new life post-elections, it would be a multiple thing. I needed to go build. I needed to be involved in things from scratch. I needed to build teams from scratch. I needed to identify the people that I wanted to work with. I needed to have this grand goal. And I needed to do other stuff around my work that would ultimately make me happy. So a lot of people are miserably unhappy, um, let's be honest. And <clears throat> I think you can apply that that lens of the world into the corporate space and into the world of entrepreneurship. Um, so you mentioned a number of things around like community contribution, all that kind of stuff. But what if someone is listening to this podcast and isn't happy with either the way that their business currently exists uh, or where it's at, or maybe there's someone that's sitting in a bank and is miserable and uninspired with the corporate world. What advice do you have for them and what actions do you think they can take to kind of shift their perspective and ignite their uh, passion for life? You know, I, I went to a, a talk, a masterclass on happiness by a guy called Daniel Gilbert, the world expert on happiness. And uh, it was an amazing thing. It was when the Israeli president, Shimon Peres, turned 90. He had his annual president's conference, and it was incredible. Tony Blair was there, and Bill Clinton, and Rahm Emanuel, and uh, Daniel Kahneman, and uh, Dan Ariely. And this guy, Gilbert comes, world expert, Harvard professor on happiness. And he does a masterclass on happiness. And the first thing he does is he says to everyone, when he was young and he finished school. His mother said, there are three secrets to happiness in life. Get married, get a good job and have a family. And those are the three things that will make you happy your entire life. So he said, he became a professor of psychology at Harvard. His area of expertise was happiness because he wanted to know if his mother lied to him or not. <laughs> and he actually asked the audience, he says to the audience, so tell me, does money bring you happiness? Everyone votes no. Do your children bring you happiness? Everyone votes, votes, vote, votes yes. Goes, goes through this entire process. The answers, I think, are obvious. Then he says, the only trouble is you're wrong. He says, we do studies, he says. We do studies and we ask people, are you happy? And they've worked out a normative way to be able to baseline happiness. He said, money does bring you happiness. In fact, quite the opposite in, the lack of money brings you misery. And in America, they've pegged it, I think it's $72,000 a year. If you earn less than $72,000 a year, you are always worried about money and you will always be unhappy. Once you earn above the minimum threshold, the $72,000 that they've identified, money is no longer an issue. And you can go and get on with the rest of your life, but don't think the lack of money is irrelevant you will always be miserable below that threshold. He says they've done tests between people who earn $72,000 and $120,000 a year. The level of happiness is so small, the difference, that it's actually irrelevant. So you just have to get over the minimum threshold. That's, that's the first thing. The second thing is they've actually done tests, for example, with people, and they say like mothers with their children. 
are you happy while your child is vomiting all over you, while the child nappies need you? The mothers are generally miserable. They say to them, would you rather be doing this or would you rather be out of out with your friends for tea. The mothers would rather be out with their friends. Would you rather be doing this or would you rather, in fact, be at work? They'd rather be at work. The rest of the show is coming up shortly. But now a quick word from two of our sponsors that make this show possible. So on the 14th of June, I'm attending the release of a research and discussion paper called Unicorns, Gazelles and Leapfrogs. It takes a look at the South African startup ecosystem and proposes some options catapulting it forward. Developed over six months by Jason Levine and his company Elevation, it covers off the findings from 30 executive interviews conducted between last year December and this year May. It will be available as a downloadable PDF free of charge on request though, uh, but you can do that from elevation-holdings.co.za after the 14th of June. Uh, Mr. Levine, that's Jason, <laughs> he wants to be a catalyst for conversation in the ecosystem and will be coordinating some events along with partners like Gibbs and Simodisa to shake it up a little bit. Um, I will be at the launch event doing a live podcast, so if you guys are interested, I cannot recommend checking out the data in this report. Um, it's, uh, it's really, really compelling. Serious Business is a development company that focuses on building some really amazing web and digital and app products. They are really focused on reducing the time that it takes for entrepreneurs to get into market with a digital product. They built some cool stuff for me, so I cannot recommend them enough. If you go to their website, it's srsbsns.co.za. And why don't you take up their challenge of building any website within 14 days? That sounds pretty cool to me. So jump on board and check out their website, srsbsns.co.za. And interestingly, they found as well that marriage brings you happiness, providing you're in a marriage that's working. If your marriage is miserable, it's a terrible thing. You must get out as soon as possible. But married people, generally, if the marriage is working, are happier than unmarried people. That's that's part of the masterclass that Daniel Gilbert, Gilbert gives, and, uh, and it's a fascinating insight. But I, I think everyone is searching for meaning. And the one thing that you need in order to achieve meaning is you need to feel empowered that you can change things. So when you ask the question to someone who's in a job and or starting a business and they're miserable, do you feel like you're the victim or do you feel like you're in control? And in order to be happy, you need to feel, even if it's failing, you still need to feel like you're in control and taking responsibility yourself because, you know, lots will happen around. Many of us will try things. Many things will fail. Some things will work because it helps to work hard and it helps to be smart and it helps to be educated. But the 90% of it is timing and luck. <laughs> and, but if you feel that you're in control, if you feel you can change things, even if it's slightly incremental better the next thing because you're in control – I think that leads to a piece of fulfillment. That leads to that self-actualization. The moment you think the rest of the world is conspiring against you, that you're disempowered to change anything, I think that's what leads to, to misery. And I think ultimately in the entire process here, people need to understand they're always in control. Yeah, I, I was. I'm fascinated by this particular subject because um, what I was going to ask you, like, what causes the shift in someone to make? a significant change in their lives. So take myself, for instance. So I've had, I've been in and out of corporates and every time I was, I was either running a business or I was in corporate, but every time I was in corporate, you kind of, you just get to a point where there's a status quo in play. Um, and it takes a spark, something, a catalyst to create that self-actualization in you in order to take the risk. What's your experience with that? I, I think it's self-confidence, to be quite honest. You know, I, as a lawyer, I was a junior lawyer who knew very little. I went to the IEC. I always believed that someone would walk into my office, and I became executive director of the IEC. Um, and I always believed someone was going to walk into office and say, oh, my goodness, we've made a terrible mistake. He's a guy in his 20s. What on earth does he know? He's responsible for de delivering an election. The country's dependent on him. We've made a terrible mistake. We're sorry. Like, please go and do some, something else. We've got, you know, something, but having run elections for six years, you be able to get the confidence to say, you know something, 
actually, I've worked harder than everyone. I, I have tried new things more than everyone. I've been more innovative than, you know, I'm prepared to give it another shot. And, you know, the jump for me out of kind of government work into, into then the corporate world to go run a technology business called HealthBridge. Um, and, and we were kind of the first electronic switch online in South Africa. And we linked doctors and medical insurers to each other and ultimately hospital groups and pathology groups. And we're doing electronic switching between all of them. Um, and, you know, the confidence I got from being successful in the previous job allowed me to go do the next job. And, you know, once again, I've been in SICOM now, telecoms business for the last 12 years. And when you start out, you think, oh, my goodness, does everyone actually understand how little I know? 12 years later, where we routing telephone calls into Africa and doing SMSs and cloud-based PBXs and voice over RP, and uh, we're telling people how to manage their cell phone bills, and we've got an office full of unbelievable people who we've selected by hand to be part of this journey with us. You know, you say, my goodness, we've learned along the way. You have to be willing to learn. You have to be able to take feedback. You have to learn from the failings, and there are going to be many, many failings along, along the way. And you have to just be able to say, okay, yesterday was a bad day, but you know something, tomorrow's going to be much better. And we're going to try the next five or six things differently and see if it works. And if it doesn't, there are another 20 things that we're still going to try in order, order to make it work. And one of the lessons you learn as well is when to actually pull the plug. You know, you can bash your head against the wall for a long period of time. And at some point in time, you're going to say, you know something, that's just not working. It's time to pivot, to change, to try something new new and different as well. But I think it all comes from that degree of confidence. I can do it. I believe in myself. I, be I believe I've got a lot to learn from everyone. And I have things to learn from the most junior people. But I need to actually have respect and love the people I work with. And I need to be able to listen to them and to take their advice and each day be just a little bit better than I was the previous day. And if I'm willing to do that, I have the belief that I can have a better tomorrow. So I totally agree with you. But how do you foster confidence in someone? Because I'm, my whole thing is around, and the reason why I do this podcast is because I want to grow entrepreneurship in South Africa. Because to your point, I really do believe that it's something that anyone can do, but it isn't for, for, for everyone. But the thing is, there's tons of people sitting in unfulfilled lives right now as we're sitting here having this conversation and they don't have the confidence or the self, the, the ability to self-actualize so that they can then take the path or choose the path of becoming an entrepreneur. Um, and so for me, I'm fascinated to get your views on how do you foster confidence in yourself? So if you are not an entrepreneur, but you're unhappy where you are, there's this thing called entrepreneurship that has such high benefits. It's tough. It's fucking hard, right? <laughs> but, uh, and, but, it, but it comes with so much learning and so much experience that you'll never, ever get in a safe ship like a bank. So how do you foster confidence in someone or in yourself? You know, it's very hard when you look back on your life and you say, oh, if only I, were, I knew then what I know now. If only having been through the mill once, twice, three times, I had this level of experience and I could apply it to the 20-year-old me, um, you know, because we all grow as people. And, you know, our lives are not like a, a video recorder or a CD that you play backwards and it looks the same. We look through a different lens every time we look back based on the experiences and the lives that, that we've had. And so it's quite difficult to get to give someone advice about their own life, you know, and but the bottom line is people have to take responsibility for themselves. And if you're not willing to take responsibility, and it even, you know, you don't have to be an entrepreneur to do that. Say, say you're at Absa Bank and you're miserable in what you're doing, work out what you're really good at. Go talk to someone within the bank about how the things you really are good at, how they can use your skills better. If you're unwilling to talk to people, if you're unwilling to go through that negotiation with people to try get the greatest value out of you for them, as well as fulfillment for themselves, then you must be happy in your misery. And uh, I, I'm sorry that may sound a, a little harsh. Just take it. But if you believe you're the victim, yeah. then in fact, you actually are, but you're your own worst victim. You're the enemy you've created yourself. You know, there's that amazing meme, I'm sure you've seen it, of a donkey tied to a plastic chair. And the plastic chair probably, 
weighs under a kilogram, but the donkey believes that it's chained and tied up, so it doesn't move because it understands that this, this little rope that ties it to a chair secures it. But all it has to do is take a step to the left or the right and the chair will move with it because the chair weighs nothing. And I think that's such an amazing metaphor for so many people's lives that you think you're in a box, but you're actually not. You think no one cares, but everyone does. You know, I, I often hear, oh, my boss hates me. You know, so no one's boss hates them. That's the biggest nonsense. Your boss, no matter who that is, wants the easiest life possible. They want nothing to worry about. They want to go and play golf. They want to go to, to have their hair done. They, they want to know that the people who are working with them and for them are just doing the best that they can, and they will never be surprised. If something's going to go wrong, they want to know at the first opportunity, not when it's already gone wrong. If something's not complete, they don't want to find out on the day of the deadline. They want to be able to manage the things that they know. And if you're a good employee, if you communicate effectively through to your boss, if you do your job and you do your job well, or if you're not coping, you've gone to say, I need help on something, or I need training on something, or help me to be a better employee, no one's boss ever hates them. And sometimes we need to learn to be able to manage our bosses as well in those sorts of environments. It's not a one-way thing. Mm. And, and, and part of everyone's job, and ultimately we all have bosses in life. You know, even in this sort of environment, you know, we still got a board and we got outside shareholders and we're accountable to them. And you know something? So we should be. We must always be accountable not only to ourselves but to someone else. We always need someone just to be able to look over our shoulders, to keep us honest, to make sure that we're getting a grander vision and people who can take a step backwards and say, let's look at the big picture again. And are you actually on the right path to get there? And to be able to find those mentors in life, those people who can just help us and give us perspective mm. often is enormously beneficial. Yeah, I just want to pick up on one thing you mentioned there about um, victor versus victim. Mm. And I think even in, in the entrepreneurship space, this is such a common thing that I find because it's very easy to blame everything other than yourself. Yeah. And as soon as, like, if I do that, so everyone's guilty of that to, to a certain degree. But if I catch myself doing that, I immediately recognize it and I actually ask why. Because it shifts responsibility back to me as the owner of the business, which therefore makes me accountable in terms of the decisions that I need to make in order to fix the problem that I need to fix. It's not a case of looking at the problem and just going, well, fuck, it's actually my clients who pay late or it's a fact that no one understands what I'm trying to offer in the market. Those are all kind of victim stories that you tell yourself, which never actually serve you um, in any respect. But the reality is we're all victims. We all have clients who don't pay us. We're all in a regulatory environment that's going to change. We're all going to lose a contract. Are we victims as a result? Absolutely. The question is, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to do something different because of that environment? Or are you going to just be involved in that victimhood? And I think that's the key question. So, you know, your clients won't pay you. Have you popped over for coffee to say, look, you know, I'm a startup business. I really need your help. I really need your support. And the fact that you haven't paid me is really struggling. Everyone's human. Tell them a human story. Mm. And I think the, the amazing thing is that we learn is that stories change people. You can speak in theory as much as you want, but go in and tell your customers a story, something gripping, something riveting, something personal that they can relate to, that they can always remember and associate you with. Mm. Can I tell you a story I was once given? Because, and, and let me just go, go back a step. Yesterday, I was going through my subscriber list. And just to get to know them, I picked a couple, looked at their websites, reached out to them, said, listen, do you want to have a five-minute chat? Anyway, one of the guys is called Matt. Excuse me. Um, not talking to yourself. No, 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 definitely not myself. <laughs> but, um, but I spoke to him and he was like a design shop and his wife was doing copywriting, uh, social media stuff and what have you. And anyway, long story short, he said, I said, so what are you doing now? And he said, no, I'm going back into the corporate space. And I said, yeah, but why are you doing that? He says, well, you know, the business kind of ran into some cash flow problems and it was necessary for me to, to, to make that decision. And it reminded me of a story when I started one of my first businesses in London. And it was all in the kind of personal development, self-help self -help space. 
And uh, I didn't really know what I was doing from a business perspective, as you do, as you know, when you start out for the first time. Um, and I had a coach and I phoned my coach and I said to him, listen, this is the situation. What do you think I should do? So he told me the story and he said, so in, in the 1500s or whenever it was, there was this great military leader and he had a hundred thousand, um, war hardened, uh, soldiers and he crossed, they were invading another land and they crossed this, this ocean. And when he got there, he told all of his lieutenants to burn their ships because he didn't want his uh, soldiers to even consider the fact that there was another option and to go back to the, the kind of space or environment of safety. Um, so my question to you is, how do you remain single-minded when things are really tough out there? You know, um, I think the story you're telling me, I'm just going to retell in, in a slightly different way. There are only two problems in life, no choice and too much choice. And sometimes you get paralyzed by the too much choice, and sometimes you get paralyzed by the no choice at all. And there's certainly a path in the middle of, of there where you have to fi find the ground that you, that you can work in. So, so I'm not sure what the answer is to, to your question. But you know something? Ultimately, for me, it is maybe that burning of the ship. I'm never going to go back to be a lawyer. No matter what it takes, no matter if I have to go sweep the streets, but I know what will make me miserable, and I think I've got a fairly good idea what will make me happy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes because, you know, it's my life. I've only got one shot at this. I'm going to give it all. I want somehow, you know, uh, I have no idea if I'm going to be hit by a bus tomorrow. Um, but I... Part, part of it is, I wouldn't say legacy because I, I think that's a nonsense uh, idea, but you know, I, I think part of what we do here is to just try to create a better world, a better environment, a better community, a better business community, a more innovative society, a better society, whatever it is that drives you, and just stick to it. And of course, things are going to go wrong. You know, that's the, that's the story of life. So what? You know, and it's all about mental attitude. It's all about determination. It's all about, you know, of course, I can go slit my wrist tomorrow. Is it going to help me? Is it going to help any, anyone else? Am I going to feel better by, about myself? Absolutely not. You know, mm. this is a journey, and I don't believe there's a destination. It's about making the journey really worthwhile. And, you know, I mentioned, I mentioned it earlier on, and... I travel extensively, 74 countries. It's, it's, it's a remarkable world out of there. And, and I've learned so much from being in so many of these places. And I want to tell you, the first time I went to Vietnam was 20, or 2001, I think it was. And I looked, I was trying to cross the street, and the streets are chaos. The, the traffic lights change from green to red, and the traffic doesn't stop. And there are just thousands, tens of thousands of motorbikes going through. And I'm standing waiting to cross the road. And I never get to cross the road because the traffic never stops until someone finally comes and grabs me and walks me across the road. But I look around at the people, and it's 11 o'clock at night. And people are still trading in their little stores. And they didn't stop at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And in the stores at 11 o'clock at night, they're sitting there and it's the family eating dinner and trading and the parents are helping their kids with, with homework at 11 o'clock at night in the actual store. And they realize what it takes to build a better society. And, you know, for them in places like Vietnam and particularly in India, I'll tell you a story in India, I went to a place called Dharavi Slum in the middle of Mumbai. A million people live within about one square kilometer. And it's a shanty it's unbelievable, and yet it's spotlessly clean. And you know how many policemen there are for a million people? One. Zero. <laughs> because the community understands that if you commit crime, if you steal or murder, you will be killed by your next-door neighbor. So you know what they do? They don't do crime. And, you know, I went into someone's home. I got taken into someone's home, and it's a family of five, and it's literally three meters by two meters. It's a little tin shack. And I say to the kid, you know, how do you survive in this? He said, what do you mean? This is the best community in the world. We know our next door neighbors. We have amazing time together. And the next day he was going to write his final accountancy exam. 
And he takes me afterwards and he leaves me at the train station to catch a train back from the slum back into the center of Mumbai. And I'm standing there by myself on the platform, the only white guy for probably 20 kilometers around and four guys in big leather jackets. And they come walk out. Who are you? What are you doing here? Why are you by yourself? What are you doing in the slum? And I thought, okay, I'm going to be murdered. I come from South Africa. I understand how, how this works. I hope my parents find my body somewhere <laughs> along, along the way. And all of them, we're going to extra lessons for finishing their accounting exams. All of them had registered for the next year for their MBAs. And they understand, for example, hard work, determination, and most important of all, education is the thing that's going to break them out of the slum into a far better life for themselves. So interestingly, you asked the question like, when you've got your MBA and your accounting degree, where do you think you'll live? And the answer is, no, no, we want to come back to the slum. We actually want to live in this environment. This is a fantastic environment. Despite what looks like deprivation and poverty, it's actually the place where they feel most at home. But they understand for their lives and the lives of people around them, this is in fact what it takes. Hmm. And I think both of those stories about the kids doing their homework at 11 o'clock at night in their par parents' little kiosk next to, the road, uh, next to the road in Vietnam, or the guys in India in the slum, understanding that education will take them out of poverty into a better future, that's really what we need to inculcate in South Africa. It's people understanding the key levers within their own lives that will change their own lives and change the society around. And that's one of the great tragedies of the country in which we live, where our education system now, 22 years, 23 years, after the advent of democracy in this country, our education levels have failed to keep up with the rest of the world. And you look at places like Singapore and how the educational system in Singapore is done. In places like India, where the top students from every school get put into a better school, and the top students from that school get put into a better school, and they're creating engineers, hundreds of thousands of engineers, people that will drive the Indian economy. When you go through China, and I spent a lot of time in rural China, and just seeing the most hardworking, industrious people who believe in this grand vision of the country. And, you know, I come out of a capitalist background and a Western society, and I float down the Three Gorges Dam, and I stop at little communities along the way, and people say, oh, the floodwaters are coming in April. We need to be out of our house by April because by then our village will be gone. The dam will have taken it. And they say, say well, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are being displaced but they believe in this grand vision for China. They believe that the electricity that the Three Gorges Dam will generate will be to the benefit of all society, and they're willing to make sacrifices for that. And that's part of a lesson that we need to, in this country, actually understand, that we need to believe in a better South Africa. We need to believe in education, and that education will get us to the next level. We need engineers, and we need doctors, and we need nurses, and we need accountants. We need those people to be the foundation of what we do. And then we need those people to stand up to say, working in that accounting firm isn't enough. I'm going to sell oranges next to the side of the road because I can sell 10 oranges a day, which will allow me to build a little kiosk. And that little kiosk will allow me to open up a spaza shop. And the little spaza shop will allow me to open up five spaza shops in the township. And then, you know, something I'm going to do a joint venture with pick and pay because partnerships are key to this entrepreneurial thing. And I'm going to open up garage shops. And that's we're going to step by step build this country. Those people who have a grand idea and go to the industrial development mag or one of the, the PRC with an idea, but with no track record, with no experience, those people are absolutely doomed to failure. Mm. But go ask one of those guys selling paintings next to the road in Johannesburg or one of those people selling plastic hammers rather than staying at home waiting for someone to do. Those are the guys that will drive our economy. One question on the education. How much education do you need to be an entrepreneur? Because to your point, the education system has failed. And I think I talk a lot about the digitization of business and exponential technology in the world. The business world is just changing exponentially um, year on year. And when you try and reconcile an entrepreneur's mindset with the opportunities that exist in that space against the mess that the education system is in, how much education do you need? Or should you, in other words, formal education versus informal? You know, I, I think it depends in what area you're going to be in. 
you know, if you want to be in app development, you know, it's pretty pretty clear you probably need to be a computer programmer or an engineer, or you need to have taught yourself. And education has changed. You know, we used to think of places like universities, and today we think of the Khan Academy online or top doc edu- education, helping people get through matric. And the amazing thing is that almost all education is now available to everyone on the internet. So there are those of us who've been fortunate enough and privileged to go through university and I've got through three degrees and I think it certainly helped me to get to where I am today without any doubt. But if you can't afford that, if you haven't been that privileged in life, it doesn't mean to say you don't have access to, to that. So how many TED Talks have you watched? How much Khan Academy have you watched? Many of the American universities have put all of their content online. You can go and watch these things for absolutely nothing, and you may not write the exam, but you will get the same education as someone at MIT or Harvard. And have we done that? But if we don't put in the effort, if we're expecting that someone is going to do something for us, that there will be a handout, entrepreneurs are not created by people sitting at home waiting for government to do something for them. I believe in safety nets, absolutely, particularly in a country like South Africa where we've come out of such a torrid history of deprivation and oppression. You have to have some safety nets in the society. But if you think government's going to change your life, you're absolutely wrong. Government's never changed anyone's life. Government's there to catch you to make sure you don't hit rock bottom. But government, unless you're involved in dodgy, dodgy tenders, will never make you rich, will never turn you into an entrepreneur. Go out there and sell cans of Coca-Cola on the street corner because that's the way you start. In the exact same way that I as a kid worked every weekend and every school holiday because that was just part of my life. It was part of selling. And if, you, if you're willing to do that, if you're willing to put in the effort, I think your chances of success are so much greater. Yeah, I totally agree with you. One last question uh, for you, Howard, and I'll let you get back to uh, running your empire. <laughs> hardly, hardly an empire. <laughs> this, this is our playground. <laughs> A playful empire. <laughs> but um, what's, what's in it for you? I mean, why do you do what you do? I, I, you know, that's the hardest question to answer. Um, I wake up every morning and I need to look forward to what I do every day. And I fill my life with unbelievable things. So here within the SICOM group, we've got SICOM Holdings and we do bulk SMSing and we've got a business called Terrific that is going to tell people what cell phone contract to be on and how you manage your corporate spend. And we've got our VoIP business and I'm involved in a few things in hospitality and a few things in apps. But more importantly, I'm involved in trying to change the society around me. So I'm involved in political stuff and I'm involved in community stuff. I run uh, a charity awards thing called the Juice Achiever Awards where we recognize entrepreneurship and business achievement and community service and humanitarian work. And we use it as a big charity fundraiser, but we actually go out and to seek in societies those people who are making a difference. And, you know, I don't put myself in the league of any of those people who've won. But the fact that it's my job to go out every year and look for those people who've changed us all for the better. And we've got, for example, a Young Entrepreneur Award for people under the age of 30. And some of our award, uh, awardees, our, uh, our, our winners, have been people like Claudia Schwartzberg from Top Dog, who in her 20s, an actuary who has built an educational empire helping people get through matric. People like Nadav Ossendriver, who created uh, later sightings and all these apps that allow you to find animals and to view view wildlife on on the web like some of the most remarkable inspirational human beings and part of my life is to try find those people and to honor them and respect them and to create them into role models for all of society to really emulate and there's so many people I work with and I look around with and I I see on a regular basis and I say wow those people have really made a difference and if I'm in some way aspire to be just like them that's what gets me up every single morning. Amazing. So speaking of honor, it's been my honor uh, to have basically had the, the last hour with you to get your story and your views on record. It's really been a privilege. So thank you. Thank you. And I really appreciate the time. Awesome. Ciao. So in news this week about the Matt Brown Show and Digital Kung Fu... 
This week I was published in Entrepreneur Mag uh, about my journey with the podcasts. You can check out the post on their website. It's entitled Five Answers from Digital Kung Fu on Why Podcasts Are Your Best Self-Development Tool. But really it's around sharing insights and lessons that I've learned in the process of building the Matt Brown Show as a global media platform. And off the back of that, I have put together a talk which I'm giving. It's called The Big Red Button Keynote and Lessons from Billionaires, Entrepreneurs and CEOs. And it's designed to give you a new understanding of what makes billionaires, CEOs and entrepreneurs succeed, why others fail and how to make the stuff that you think. Um, I've been called... For some reason, South Africa's answer to Tim Ferriss, I've had people write in to me telling me how much the show has changed their world and the way that they approach life and how the show is just being followed religiously. But the bottom line here is that I really feel it's time that I share what I've learned in the process of speaking to the who's who of business in South Africa and just the guys who are really shaking up the business world. Um, So if you go to my blog, it's blog.digitalkungfu.co.za. You'll find the post there called The Big Red Button. And you can find the full details of the talk. Um, and please, please, please get on board and help me share this message. Hey guys, thanks so much for listening to the Matt Brown Show. It's been an absolute privilege having you with us. And remember, if you'd like more information on Digital Kung Fu or our guests and the full show notes... All you have to do is head on over to digitalkungfu.co.za and you can catch us all over the social media graph. So till next time. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.